Welcome to Soul Talk, soulful conversations exploring who you are, why you're here, and how to live your most authentic life. My name is Coop Blackson, nationally best-selling author of You Are The One, transformational teacher, and your host. I invite you to subscribe to the Soul Talk podcast for weekly inspiration from me, where I will share with you some powerful ideas, thoughts, and practical life wisdom to help you live life more fully, freeing yourself from your past, reclaiming your power, and living your true life's purpose. You can also go to www.coopblackson.com, enter your name and email to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment. Let's get started with Soul Talk. Welcome, folks. Welcome to another very special episode of the Soul Talk podcast. As I recall today's episode, we are indeed going through unique times in human history, uh, faced with the COVID-19 coronavirus uh, as a humanity. And these are intense times, challenging times, but as difficult as these times are for so many on the planet, I believe that uh, we are in an, uh, a time of sort of spiritual awakening and evolution within our souls. We're being forced to go inside and reconnect and realign and uh, reflect on who we are and why we're here and where we're going more than ever. And I think these times, if we really work with these times, can uh, help us evolve in very profound ways. And so uh, my guest today, I'm really excited about my guest today. Uh, I first, uh, to be honest, I'm more than excited. Uh, to me, he's a legend, an inspiration. Uh, his work has inspired me for many years during my career. I read his book maybe 20 years ago when I went to a store called The Bodhi Tree in Los Angeles, picked up his book and literally read the entire book uh, at The Bodhi Tree before I even bought it. Then I bought it and reread it and uh, told everyone about the book when it first came out. Uh, he's a modern-day spiritual messenger. He's written, check this, 29 books. It might have gone up uh, since the writing of the bio. Uh, you've probably read his books in some way, shape, or form, directly or indirectly. Uh, your life has probably been touched in some way by his work. Uh, Conversations with God, Neil Donald Walsh. I don't think anything uh, else needs to be said. Neil. Welcome to Soul Talk. Thank you for coming on. It's such an honor, privilege, pleasure, and joy. I've been looking forward to this for years now. Well, it's lovely to be here, Kuda. Thank you very much for the invitation. Um, I, I reject um, the notion that I'm a legend of any kind. You know, someone once said, he's a legend in his own mind. I hope I'm not a legend. <laughs> but um, but I, I, do, I will acknowledge that the um, message that I've been given which is different from you know the messenger. We we have, we can't confuse the messenger with the message. But the message that I've been given, yes, has touched actually millions of people around the world. Mm-hmm. I'm grateful to say, and uh, even a bit shocked and surprised at the beginning when I saw what was happening with this message that that people were picking it up and reading it and passing it on, and and they were passing it on, and it it had an enormous hand, what we call hand-to-hand audience, people were sharing it with other people. And that, that resulted, could ultimately in uh, over two and a half million books being sold. Uh, and the numbers has gone up since then. So, uh, and I'm not bragging about it, I'm just noticing with astonishment, oh my gosh, you know, what, what is this? What has happened here? What, what's, what's really occurred? And I, it's then when I realized 
that it didn't have anything to do with me exclusively. You know, uh, let me let me begin. I don't. You haven't even asked me a question yet, but let me just give you a tiny bit of background. I never. I, I was having a personal experience, just a, an experience of journaling, what what we would call today journaling. Maybe I was writing in what I thought would be my diary. Mm. I was simply asking life. Or God, you know how you do, you just throw questions out to, to the world. What's going on? What's happening? Why does life have to be like this? What have I just done to deserve a life of such continuing struggle? Somebody give me the rules. I remember writing on my yellow legal pad, somebody give me the rules. I'll play. I promise I'll play. Just tell me the rules. <laughs> After you give me the rules, don't change them. Because my experience is that all the rules were changing. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, could, uh, I'm, I'm writing these questions on a yellow legal pad at 4.20 in the morning, just mm-hmm. out of desperation and out of anger, you know, but, but never dreaming in a million years that anyone would ever see this as a private experience I'm having at 4.20 in the morning. Mm-hmm. But I began hearing a voice uh, over my right shoulder as if it were in the room. And then that voice gradually moved into my mind it became a part of my internal experience. But the voice was saying, Neil, do you really want answers to all of these questions or are you just venting? Right, right. You know, and I said to myself, you know, there's nobody else in the room. I'm talking to myself, but I'm talking out loud because there's nobody there. And I'm saying, yeah, you're damn right I'm venting. You know, what the hell is going on here? How does this all work? I need it explained to me. Otherwise, you know what? I don't want to play. Mm. I don't want to play. I'm out. I'm getting out. Hmm. And, and uh, I was serious about not wanting to go on with the way my life had been going. Mm. You know, I was sitting there, I should tell you, with a broken neck in an automobile accident. Wow. I couldn't find work anywhere. Nobody would hire me. With a, I was walking around with a Philadelphia collar, which is a plastic device that holds your head up because your neck can't do the work. Wow. So, the doctor said, Neil, imagine trying to hold a basketball on the head of a pin. That's what's going on right now. You can't balance your head, so you got to wear this device. I had to wear that device for over a year. And when I would walk in to apply for a job anywhere, nobody would hire me because they could see right visually that, oh, my God, here's another insurance claim. He, he lifts one box wrong right. you know, or does one thing wrong, and he's going to have an insurance. We can't hire this guy. So mm-hmm. I couldn't get work anywhere. I finally ran out of money, and could mm-hmm. I, I wound up living on the street. I, li- I wound up living on the sidewalk for uh-huh. a year of my life. To two weeks shy of one year to be exact, and, and 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 I had no income of any kind, no money. I didn't have as much as fifty cents in my pocket. I had gotten down to my last penny, quite literally. And wow. I'm walking the sidewalk, sleeping on the sidewalk, sleeping in a park. I found a little place, a little homeless park where I could sleep, where the, where the people who ran the park would allow transients, what they called us transients in those days, to just kind of find a little space and maybe sleep under a tree. To get, out, to get out from the weather a little bit. And I did that for a year, walking the streets with my hand out, asking people anything. Could you give me anything? I swear to God, a quarter could change my life if I could get it from five people. Because in those days, a dollar twenty-five could buy you a bag of French fries. So I, I lived that way for a solid year of my life. And when I got off the street, I got back into the world of work after a year on, on the sidewalk. Uh, I, I realized how vacuous life was. I realized that, that, is this it? Is this really it? Mm. What you expect me to go through until the rest of, you know, for the next 20 or 30 or 40 years? Wow. And I was furious and angry with God. And I said, if this is all you have to offer down here, I'm out. And that's when I had my 
conversation with God. And I'll wrap up my little self-described bio, if I can, with one more sentence. I never intended anyone to see what I had written in my notes. People have asked me, well, then how did it get to a publisher? Well, later on in the dialogue, it said, this will one day become a book. And I thought to myself, ah, now I gotcha. Because this, this is really coming from a higher source, whatever, I call it God, whatever you want to call it. If this is really coming from someplace that I'm not really making it up in my mind, I now have a way of proving it because here's a statement. All the other statements in the dialogue were conceptual in nature. It could be, could not be, who would know? But here was a statement of fact. This will become a book. was a measurable outcome. I mean, either it would or it wouldn't. Mm. So, so I said, you know what? I'm going to have this typed up. It was all handwritten, of course, on the yellow legal pads. But I had it typed up by a stenographer. I didn't have any money. She offered to do it for nothing. And, and she uh, typed up the whole manuscript, what became the manuscript, sent it to a couple of publishers. And by golly, one of them said, we really find this fascinating. We're going to publish it. Wow. The book wound up on the New York Times bestseller list for 137 weeks, which is absurd. Crazy. Craziness. Oh, I see. So the most improbable thing that could possibly have happened has actually happened here. And this has turned into a global bestseller, translated into 37 languages, and sold worldwide. That's my story in two and a half minutes. I love it. Not asking. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. You know, so... How did you, when you had this voice, obviously you've probably asked, you know, talked about this, but how did you know it was God? How did you, mm-hmm. how did, how, what, like, many people say, you're going crazy, you're hearing voices, Neil, come on. I mean, yeah, well, yeah. of course I didn't tell anybody, so they would have said that if I told anybody. So, but I didn't. What did you, what did you think it was? I did, I did think I was going crazy at first. I thought, oh my God, no, I'm losing my mind. I really am, I, I question my own sanity as anybody would. But I, I didn't hear the voice uh, in the room for more than a few moments. It very quickly, I want to say, if I could describe it this way, moved inside of my head and became part of my inner consciousness. Nevertheless, it was continuing to speak to me. And it sounded to me like the sound of one's own thoughts. Like when you, like, like when you listen to your own thoughts. That's how it sounded to me, except that the content that, it, that is what it was saying to me were thoughts I never had in my life. In a million years, never even had thoughts like it. Yeah, to give you one example, you know, there's no such thing as right and wrong, or, or and there's no such thing as the Ten Commandments, and yeah. God does not punish you or judge you or condemn you in any way. It's thoughts that were coming to me clearly, not thoughts I ever carried in my own mind, but I was writing them down, scribbling like crazy. But I, you know, I, to answer your question directly, how did I know it was God? I didn't know it was God until I began hearing statements that could not have come from any place else except, except a source of wisdom much more elevated than I had ever experienced internally in my own life. Mm. Statements that challenged everything I ever believed, that opened doors that I never even knew existed, that brought me explanations that I couldn't have conceived of possibly, mm. and that wound up producing, in the end, nine books of, of, of interactive dialogue that have touched the world entire. So now, I don't know what to call that. I, I decided to call it God uh, after a while. I simply named it God because I couldn't think of any other word to describe this ineffable wisdom that seemed to be, how do I describe it, flowing through me in answer to my every question. So w- when you say God, I guess you're talking about how you, you chose to call it God. 
to describe this, this wisdom. How, how do you define God? What, 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 what does God mean to you? What did God mean to you? And now where you're at, has your definition of God evolved? When you say God, what does God mean? Because sometimes we have an idea of God, but as we evolve, our definition of God evolves. And maybe someone listening to this conversation, they're like, screw you, Neil. I mean, I don't believe in God. That's just, that's BS, God. I hate God. I hate the church. And so how can also, kind of like asking three questions, but how, how can also someone, someone who maybe doesn't believe in God, the concept, still connect to that ineffable wisdom? Well, let, let's go back to, to the first of your 36 questions. Uh, and, and uh, you know, how, how do I describe God? I don't. But God is the indescribable. God is the all in all, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the up and the down of it, the left and the right of it, the here and the there of it, you know, the black and the white of it, the big and the small of it, the fast and the slow of it, the male and the female, created he them. It's all of it put into one, and the totality of that really is indescribable. Any attempt to describe God limits our definition of what we would call God and therefore renders it in that very moment invalid. So I would simply say God is the indescribable all in all, the everything. And the first lesson, the first uh, message that I got in my conversations with God was a profound message. I really, after that first message, I really didn't need anything else. She said very clearly, Neil, listen to this. All things are one thing. There is only one thing and all things are part of the one thing there is. Now, when someone says to me, I don't tell me about God. I don't want to hear about God. I hate the church. I don't want, there's no such thing as God. It's a figment of our imagination. You know, uh, I say, you could very well be right. You could very well be right. I have no need to argue with you, nor do I even have a desire to try to convince you of otherwise. If that's your genuine, honest-to-goodness, authentic thought, stay true to yourself. Never lie to yourself or abandon yourself. Stay true to yourself. But I invite you just for the sake of the intellectual excursion of it, hmm. to read this material and then tell me what you think. And I'm telling you now, Coot, nine out of 10 people who say, okay, fair enough, as an, as an intellectual exercise, yeah. I'll entertain you that far. They, read, they don't even get halfway through it and they call me back and they say, my God, I don't know where this stuff came from, but it sure didn't come from your mind. <laughs> where did this, and and not, only did, not only did they say I don't know where this stuff came from but they say almost to a person I, ab I agree with and resonate with and I am in harmony with virtually every word I have seen in this dialogue mm. now, again I'm not bragging about that this is, and this is not me boasting this is me simply reporting back to you what the uh, experience is that I have had and now that millions of people in 37 languages have read the material and said much of the same thing, I have come to the conclusion, oh, I see. This was never meant just for me. This was meant for the world entire. Mm, beautiful. You talked about this being homeless for a year and not even having 50 cents to rub together at times. I mean, that's quite a humbling experience I can imagine. So I, I'd love to know during that difficult moment of your life, um, how was it? What did you learn? And what kept you going? Because I think a lot of people when, you know, they're faced with such difficult moments would lose faith, would want to give up, some even commit suicide. And something kept you going. 
each day. And I'd like to know what kept you moving, what kept you going, and what you learned. Um, what I learned was that people can be cruel, incredibly heartless, uh, and also incredibly kind and incredibly generous. Mm. I, I, I learned that I really didn't really have until that moment in my life. And by the way, I wasn't a young man. This is not when I was 25 or 35 or even 45. I was 50 years old, you know. Mm. I was approaching 50. I was 49 years old. And so I was past the midway point of my, of my life. And, and, and I, I realized, having gone through past the midway point in my life, I realized how little I really understood about life, how little I understood myself, honestly, how little I understood people in general, how little I understood about the purpose of life, the function of life, what it is that people really yearn for at the deepest level as opposed to on the surface. I learned, I learned about life itself. Mm. I learned as a result of that experience how to respond to life in a way that I never would have, never would have dreamt of if I hadn't had that experience. You know, if you want to really have a, my father used to say it's like a college education. You know, this was like a college education. I'll tell you what, here's what I want you to do. If you want to really get a sense of this, forget about doing it for a year. Do it for a weekend, just, just for one weekend. Decide on Friday morning that you're going to take all the money out of your pocket, all the change you know, out of your purse, whatever, and, and you're going to put on one piece of clothing, a, a shirt, a blouse, a pair of slacks, whatever, and that's it. That's all you're going to wear for the whole weekend. Let yourself smell the way you're going to smell after four days. Let yourself look the way you're going to look after four days. And then hit the sidewalk at, at 7 o'clock on Friday morning. And don't come back until 10 o'clock on Sunday night. Just do it for one weekend. Mm. Take no money with you. You've got to figure out how you're going to eat. Because, you, you know, you know, I was dumpster diving. You know, they made a movie of this, but Hollywood made a film of this. And they, 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 and they made a movie of you know, and they, they actually put on film where I was dumpster diving, reaching in for any kind of garbage I could eat. And I actually found one. i never forget it. Some, some, some child, I guess, it must have been a kid, nobody else would do it, uh, threw his whole lunch away because he either didn't like the taste of it or whatever. There was a hamburger in there from, from Burger King or whatever with French fries, the whole thing. I don't know how it got in there, but there it was. <laughs> and we're reaching in there going, oh, my God, there's a whole hamburger in here. I sat there on the ground right next to the dumpster eating the hamburger and the french fry and a policeman came along and said move along move along you can't stay here you know, and I had no you have, you have nowhere to go to the bathroom you know going as they say when we were kids number one was a little easier but going number two where do you do that when you're on the street so you have to go into a restaurant and beg them could I please please I swear to God, if I, I'll, be, I'll be in and out in five minutes. Could I just use the bathroom? I'm on the street and I have nowhere, nowhere to, to do this. And, the, the, and, the, and most restaurant managers would not allow you. Get, no, sorry, sorry, we don't want you in here. But every so often, one out of a hundred would say, okay. They would look at you and say, in and out, in and out. I'd say, I got it, I got it. Race into the bathroom, do what I needed to do, get out of there and thank God somebody gave me a place to do that. And then you, you lose all sense of human dignity. You lose all sense of who you are. But which, here's what's interesting, Coot. What you do, what you lose is your sense of who you thought you were. Right, right. What you right. gain from doing that for a weekend, forget about doing it for a year. Just do it for a weekend. You want, you want to have a real, ed, real college education in three days. Do it all day Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. You'll come back on Sunday night with a whole <laughs> idea of who you are, of what life is, of why we're here, 
what other people are up to, what their motivations are. You start being able to read people. You know, a lot of it's just an extraordinary. Then think of doing that times 52, 52 weeks, and then you, you get off the street. You know, there is no uh, master's course in human psychology that can give you what I learned a year on the street. You talked about the purpose of life and during that time reflecting on that. What is the purpose of life in your in your in your in your kind of understanding? Like, what, what is the purpose? Why are we here? Why are we born? What is the purpose of oh, clearly not just to make money and make babies? And obviously, make babies. Not, obviously not. But but you know what's interesting is I thought that was you know I, I, I didn't know any better. I thought you know I I, I was grow I grew up and I was told by my father and by my society for that matter, it's about you know get the guy, get the girl, get the car, get the job, get the house, get the spouse, get the kids, get the better job, get the better car, get the better house, get the better spouse, get the better spouse, get the better spouse you know and, and, I, and I, I wound up doing that marrying multiple times in the whole business until I finally got to this place in my life that I've just been describing at the age of 50 I realized now wait a minute let me see if I understand this let me see if I understand this 98% of the time I have spent on 98% of things that don't matter mm. that my life has nothing to do with any of that not that we don't do those things in a way that allows us to move our life purpose forward, but that's not our life purpose. I, I realized after uh, this experience and after my conversation with God, what I've described as a conversation with God, I learned that life has nothing to do with my body and nothing to do with my mind, that my body is something that I have, but not what I am. Mm. And that my body, is, excuse me, my mind, my mind is likewise something that I have, but it's not who I am. That which I am has a body and a mind, but that which I am is much bigger. And what I realized was that, you know what, I'm not a physical entity. I'm not merely a physical entity, like a dolphin or a whale or a bird in the sky or a fish in the sea. I'm, in fact, a spiritual entity having a body and a mind, but it's my spiritual agenda, what I could now have come to call the agenda of my soul, that is my reason for being here, as the French would say, my, my raison d'etre. That's what I'm doing here. And it has nothing to do with get the guy, get the girl, get the car, get the job, get the better car, get the better house. Nothing to do with any of that. I might, I might wind up doing some of those things, but not because that's my purpose, but because rather those are the instruments through which I have advanced my purpose. Yeah. So when somebody says to me these days, Neil, okay, having heard all of that, then what is the purpose of life? I tell them quite simply, the purpose of life, in a word, is the evolution of the human soul. That if, 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 if in fact I am a spiritual entity, then I live forever. I don't die when my body dies. And I have a purpose in my eternal life. And the purpose of my eternal life is to provide myself an opportunity to recreate myself anew in every golden moment of now in the next grandest version of the greatest vision ever I held about who I am. Or to put it in a word, to evolve to become a demonstration of my true identity. And my true identity is divinity. And so I see that the purpose of life is for me to demonstrate, experience, and express my divine nature. Mm. Other messengers have told us the same thing through the years, each in their old way, in their own way. I simply didn't believe them. Hmm. It was too esoteric for me to grasp. It doesn't have any on-the-ground meaning for me. It didn't have any practical application. It was, you know, all kinds of aesthetic stuff. Sounded very good, but how do I make that work in everyday life? Hmm. What Conversations with God taught me is how to make that work in everyday life in such a way that my 
whole life has changed forever. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. The evolution of our souls is the purpose of our life. That's beautiful. In terms of you know, how, often how people evolve, uh, a lot of times we evolve through some form of suffering, you know, in some way. And so I'm curious from your perspective, is suffering necessary? You know, do, do we have to be homeless, lose everything? Do we have to have, is there another way of evolving? Can no, we- no, no, no. I, I did it the hard way. You know, I, I often laugh at myself because I was so stubborn. You know, I really thought I had all the answers. You got to know that I was, you know, when I was 45, 40 years old, even though my life was a mess, I still thought amazingly that I had all the answers. Nobody could tell me a great deal of anything, much less about esoteric things like spirituality. I wasn't interested like you, like I was one of those guys you talked about a minute ago. I hate the church. I left the Catholic church when I was 18 or 19. I had nothing to do with it. I didn't want to have any, you know, I did. so, so I was, you know, I was out there, but, but it, with that attitude and, but everything changed in, in my life as a result of what I came to learn and came to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah, I actually lost track of the question. You but just, but like, do, do, is it necessary for oh, people no, yes, to go suffering? No, no, it's not. No, it's not. I was told very, very directly, no. Uh, suffering is not, is not um, part of the agenda. It's not necessary at any level. Uh, but it is uh, something that many of us draw to ourselves and bring to ourselves and create for ourselves because we don't know what we're doing here. That is, we don't know how the whole process works. We don't know how the whole system works. And we, so we are creating our own reality, both individually and now collectively, always collectively. And the coronavirus thing is something we're creating collectively as a tool with which we can move forward the advancement of our soul's agenda. The soul, as I've said before, lives forever. It never dies. It always was, is now, and always will be. And so the opportunity in, in every moment of our life is what aspect of divinity, if I really am if I really am an expression of divinity, earlier in our conversation I said that God told me all things are one thing. There's only one thing, and all things are part of the one thing there is. Well, if that's true, good. if that's really what's so, that means I'm part of God, and that God is part of me, because all things are one thing. So I had to really adjust my mind to accept the notion that I am an individuation of the divine. And I was given, if I could share with you, I was given um, an allegory a metaphor that God gave me. God said, okay, think of yourself in this way. Think of yourself as a wave on the ocean of God. Think Mm. of the ocean as God. Think of yourself as a wave on the ocean of God. Are Are you something other than the ocean? Is the wave something other than the ocean? The answer is no. Mm. Is is the wave separate from the ocean? The answer is no. Well, then what, then how would you describe the wave? I say, well, the wave is part of the ocean that arises from the ocean and that expresses itself and that recedes back into the ocean when the, when the expression is complete. God said, perfect. That is exactly a metaphor with regard to your relationship to the thing you call God or the essential essence, if you please, a little bit less of a dynamite phrase. Don't call it God. Just call it the essential essence or the pure energy of life itself. And you are an aspect or an expression of that pure energy that arises even as the wave arises from the ocean and that recedes back into 
the essential essence when your individualized expression is complete. And then you do it again and again and again and again in a series of what some people call reincarnations. That is, you become physical once again, mm. and then you become metaphysical, then you become physical, and then you become metaphysical. And not just on this planet, but in all the places in the universe where physicality is possible. And that's a great many places. And mm. so you move from the physical to the metaphysical aspect of life in the process of evolving and becoming the next greatest expression of who you really are. Mm. And that, in one sentence, is the purpose and the process of life itself. Mm. I could, of course, be wrong about all of this. Right. Because <laughs> now you're bringing up a, a bunch of topics, uh, which I do want to get to. I do want to get to a couple of them. But now, we're, you know, we're in the midst of, you mentioned, you know, the coronavirus. Uh, you, you mentioned that we have collectively created this. Now, I want you to break that down in terms of what you mean, because, you know, people talk about, you create your reality. Well, how did I create the coronavirus? I mean, how did I create this situation? This wasn't my creation. And so speak about how we've collectively created this, but also why you feel as a humanity, like, why is this happening, Neil? I mean, a lot of people are suffering during this time. People are starving, losing their jobs, not able to pay their bills. Uh, I'm hearing talk about the evolution of soul, but there's a single mother who she's not going to be able to, to, to pay her rent next month and is about to get evicted. And some people might say, well, how can God allow this kind of suffering to good people? Why do good people have to suffer for someone else's mistakes? And so what is going on and what, what, what is this? How can we make sense of this time? And so kind of help us understand this time we're in right now. All right. Let, let, let's get back to, how are we creating it? All creation is collaborative. All creation is collaborative. I'm not, I'm not uh, responsible for the war in Iraq. You're not responsible you know, for the starving children in certain countries of the world. Uh, and no individual is responsible for the coronavirus. All creation uh, is the res uh, on Earth is the result of the collaborative energetic process by which human beings produce their physical outcomes and their physical reality. Mm. So, um, and it is not a question of what God allows. God allows one thing, freedom to create. That's the, so God doesn't allow suffering in the sense of wanting it to occur, but God allows, God allows things to happen in the sense of the, that's simply what happened. Like, we, like if you send your children out to the backyard to play, you don't allow them to fall and trip and hurt themselves. Wow. If they come in, if they come in and say, "Why did you allow that?" You say, "No, no, 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 no. I, I gave you the, I, I gave you the, the, the power and the choice to decide to play what you wanted to play, and I didn't, I didn't tell you to play a game where you were likely to fall. You know, I, I, so I, my job is to empower you to create the experience you wish to create. So, so God is the empowerer, but not the allower or the disallower. God, God does not allow or disallow anything. God is simply an, ess an essence, the, the pure energy, the force. You know, let the force be with you. We heard that before. God is simply the force behind the universe, but it has no judgment about, about what should or should not happen. So mm -hmm. the force doesn't say, you know, I don't think it should rain on Thursday. Let's mm -hmm. make the wait, rain wait until Saturday. See, the force does not have a preference on the matter of whether it rains on Thursday or rains on Saturday. Mm -hmm. it, it allows us to produce the reality that, that we um, choose to produce and the, the sadness 
the, the sad part about that is that for undeveloped species like earthlings, we often make unconscious choices and unconscious decisions because we don't know what we're doing. We actually don't know that we're creating our own collective reality. So we're not really watching what we're doing or careful with what we're doing. And, and we allow ourselves to produce outcomes that if we thought about it consciously, of course, we would never produce. Right, wow, wow, wow. So it's not, it's not about God, God being okay with it. God is neither okay nor not okay about certain aspects, but God stands ready to empower us to resolve whatever circumstances we get ourselves into uh, if we, in fact, do so. The opportunity here with the coronavirus is no different than it was with the 1918 uh, Spanish flu epidemic or, or any, for that matter, any kind of global um, disaster that involves the people of the earth simultaneously in, in a single experience. That, that opportunity is for us to announce and declare, to express and fulfill, to become and to experience the next grandest version of who we really are. And, you know, a lot of that is going on uh, around the earth right now, and some of it is not. Some, some of it, you know, we're, we're seeing a bit of hoarding. We're seeing some people price gouging. You know, there's yeah. this, this story we saw on the Internet a couple of weeks ago about the guy who bought six, 700 bottles of, of uh, hand spray, you know, the antiseptic hand spray, and he was selling them for $40 a bottle and, and trying to make a fortune. And he was finally cut off of Facebook, and they didn't allow him to, you know, to advertise anymore because he was, he was price gouging. So we're seeing, both, we're seeing both the, I want to say in a sense, the worst of humanity and the best of humanity who wrote that wonderful work book, it was the worst of times and it was the best of times. Mm. And, so, and so we, we are seeing now the, uh, the opportunity that this event is creating for us to show up in a particular way that announces and declares loudly to all the world who we really are and who we choose to be. Wow. We're going to use this event as a process of our species evolution, whether it's going to move us one or two steps forward or three steps backward. And that's a decision we are each making collectively and individually. Mm. It's a sad thing that sometimes these evolutionary leaps have to be made in such a way where people, where individual people suffer. And, and you know, right now we know that thousands of people are dying. But here's something that we don't really pay attention to. <clears throat> we don't pay attention to statistics unless they're alarming in the moment. Here's something that people don't pay attention to, which is just as alarming to me. As we sit here right now, hmm. 653 children will die in the next hour on this planet of starvation. I said of starvation, while we're throwing away enough food in the restaurants of Paris, London, and New York, that would be needed to feed an entire village of third world people for a week. As we sit here right now, 1.5 billion people do not have one swallow, not one swallow of clean water. And they will live their entire lives without ever tasting clean water. And you might say, oh, what's the problem? So it's not clean. It's not the cleanest water. Except that when you start drinking the only water that's available to you, you get dysentery and all sorts of other diseases and thousands and thousands of people die needlessly because they simply can't get clean water. Mm -hmm. As we sit here right now, 2.7 billion people do not have indoor plumbing. I know you can't believe that in the year 2020, but I said 
a quarter of the human race to this day are needing to relieve themselves outside, and we call ourselves a civilized civilization. But we have the unique ability to ignore these conditions where eight, eight people hold more wealth and resources than one half of the human race combined. And we think, Neil, stop harping. Stop it, Neil. It's okay. It's okay that eight people hold more wealth and resources than one half of the world combined. But is it? Is that who we are as a species? I mean, to put it directly, excuse me, is this the best we can do? And that's the question. That's mm. like the coronavirus generally bring up for an entire species when the species has been ignoring the smaller issues or seemingly smaller issues for hundreds and hundreds of years. Yes. You wind up walking into a box canyon where you can't go any further. Mm. We've reached what my friend Gene Houston calls jump time where we have to jump because we can't go forward in the same straight line anymore. We're walking into a box canyon. We have to go up and over the top to a new level. We wow. have to go to a new level in the description and the expression yeah. of who we really are. Yes. I wish I had words to describe what I'm feeling, but that's the best I can do. Some, 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 this is a moment. I think it's, it's the time for us all. So let's say people are hearing this and they're feeling powerless, right? They're feeling powerless you know, at this time. I, I don't have the power. And you're talking about this time we're in, like something has to shift. There's an impetus, this impulse, the universe, kind of something is moving us to do things differently, okay? W what can we do? What, what, what can we each do during this time, let's say the next six, eight weeks to help the transition happen, to help the evolution process happen, especially for people that might say, oh, Neil, I'm just, I'm just you know, some guy in you know, Arizona. I'm, I'm just, I'm not Gandhi. I'm not the president of the United States. I'm just, thank goodness. Oh, you know, I'm Bob, I'm Susie. I mean, what, what power do I have to really make a difference? And I can't solve all the plumbing issues around the world. See, no, nobody is, what my answer would be, nobody's asking you to. What can we each do? No, each nobody, well, the first thing we can each do is forget about thinking that what we need to do is solve all the problems of the world, whether it's the coronavirus or the plumbing problems of our city or, or the political problems of our nation or anything. That's, that's not the agenda. Hmm. That's, but but if, if you are uh, clear about who you really are, it would be very clear to you that one, one person can actually make an enormous impact. Maybe you can't solve all the problems of the world overnight, but you can begin to be that force that raises consciousness within your circle of friends, within the group that you, whose lives you touch, everyone whose life you touch, in, in such a way that soon we create a ripple in the water effect, soon we start a snowball rolling downhill that can, in fact, ultimately, not in two days or two weeks or two years, but over time, that can actually begin to, to produce the change that you wish to see in the world. So never think that, that you do not have sufficient power as one person to make any kind of impact at, at all. Helen Keller put it wonderfully, do what you can do, she said. And mm. those words ring in my ears mm. from the biography of Helen Keller. Do what you can do. Now, what does that look like? A person could say, okay, what does that look like? What can I do? 
Yes. You can move through this moment being the source of wisdom, clarity, and compassion, and understanding, and assistance, and forgiveness, and all good things to everyone whose life you touch. Mm -hmm. Even if right now you can only talk to people on the internet. Mm -hmm. Even if when the thing starts to tamper down a little bit, you can begin to get out again. Are you a landlord? You can forgive the rent of your tenants for a couple of months. Mm. Not just put it off, but you can actually, maybe if you can afford to do it, you could even forgive it. Mm. Uh, um, are you a person who before the past five weeks would go out to have a, a dinner every so often at a restaurant? Yeah. I, we, my wife and I ate out at a restaurant. We have a favorite restaurant in town, and we have a favorite waitress at that restaurant. She's part of the gig economy. You could write a check for $25 or, or, or $250, whatever is within your capability, and mm. mail it to that restaurant and say, give mm. this to Carolyn. She's been our waitress for the past three years. We know she's having a tough time. We want her to have this. There are things you can do big and small, not just sharing money or sharing your resources, but how you are being the person that you are and how you touch other people's lives. We know what God said to me in conversations with God. Neil, your life has nothing to do with you. Nothing to do with you. I think I know that you think that it does, but your life is not about you. It's about everyone whose life you touch and the way in which you touch it. And when you become very clear about that, the accomplishments that you will have achieved at the end of your life will be beyond anything you could ever have imagined. You will touch people in such a way that their whole lives will change because you passed this way. And if you think that makes no difference, my gosh, if only 10 people did that in your neighborhood, the neighborhood would change. If only two neighborhoods did that in your community, your whole community would change. If only two communities in your state did that, your whole state would change. Mm. If only two states did that, your whole country would change. Mm. If only two countries did that, your whole world would change. I'm not making this up. This is how great change occurs on the planet. All great change on the planet was started by what? One person Mm. who didn't stop to think, what can I do? He stopped to think in the other way. What can I do? I wonder what I can do. And he did what became obvious that he could do in the smallest ways that graduated and became larger and larger and larger ways. Mm. Tell Martin Luther King Jr. that there was nothing he could do. Tell, and you just said a minute ago, well, I'm no Gandhi. I'm no Martin Luther King Jr. No, neither was he. Right, right, right. Before he became Martin Luther King Jr. Mm. But he had the clarity of who he was. I have a dream, he said. And he insisted on doing what he could, whatever it was, to make that dream come true. Mm. And that's true of all human beings who have started movements or started humanity's movement in its own evolutionary process. Now, you might say, because I've had people say to me, oh, well, thanks, Neil, for bringing up examples of all people who, who were killed. <laughs> right. You, you know, or who were murdered. You know, because, you know, interestingly enough, but uh, I, I don't think that's true of everyone. Jonas Salk was not murdered, and right. other, others were, were not as well. So I, I, but, the, but the issue is not even that. The issue is, if you could be 
the kind of person who touch other people, whether it's you, the people in your own household, your spouse, your children, and the, the neighbors down the block, and whoever whoever's life you touch. If mm. you can be the kind of person who decides, you know what? Their life will never be the same because I passed this way. <laughs> what kind of life do you think that would bring you? Oof. It's true. It's true. Wow. You know, I... Their life would never be the same because I passed this way. Just, just, the, I'm, I'm just, like, just the thought of that, the energy of that, that that brings up is, is, is already just transformative. It's yeah. so exciting, such an exciting way to live your life. Suddenly, your life has purpose beyond get the guy, get the girl, get the car, get the job, pay the mortgage, get the rent, you know, whatever you think your life is supposed to be about. That doesn't mean you won't do those things. Mm. You will continue to do those things, but for an entirely different reason. You do them for an entirely different reason. Yeah. And they'll become outcomes in your life yeah. rather than an attempt to get somewhere. There'll yeah. be ways of showing where you've gotten. Yeah, beautiful. Beautiful. You know, often what stops people, I think, and, and people are, are dealing with this now too, Neil, is fear. You know, lots of people are in fear and in panic during these times and, and the fear often paralyzes us. Uh, what am I going to do? How am I going to survive? But even without coronavirus, I think fear often is a virus that hijacks us from truly loving fully or unless giving our gifts, unless it doesn't. And so, so how can someone who might be paralyzed by fear in this moment or in their life move through that? How, do they, how does someone who is afraid navigate and, and work with that fear so they don't contract and, and live in scarcity and lack and, 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 and limitation? By understanding that they need nothing by becoming very clear that there's nothing in particular that they need. You know, I, I, I speak in front of large audiences around the world and I often ask my audiences, how many of you have faced in your, in your life a moment that you thought was the worst thing that could possibly happen? Mm. Yeah, you just, in that moment, I mean, gosh, you know, maybe whatever it was, the, the worst thing that could possibly happen to you, you lost your job, the mm. relationship has ended, you fell down and broke your neck, you know, whatever, which I did, by the way, in an accident. That, that's how I wound up being on the street. I broke my neck in a car accident. A guy turned right in front of me and broke my neck. And the doctor said to me in the hospital, you know, you should be dead. You do understand that 95% of people who break their neck die. Wow. And the other 5% wind up paralyzed. Wow. You're neither paralyzed nor are you dead. What is that about? Wow. Uh, I was in therapy for two and a half years with that Philadelphia collar I was talking about, but I was still alive. So I, I don't even know why I brought that up. <laughs> but, but I asked people, how many of you have ever experienced what you thought could be the worst thing that could ever happen to you? And all the hands in the audience go up, at least 95% of the hands go up. Then I say to them, how many of you discovered a month later or a year later or five years later that it was in fact the best thing that ever happened to you? Mm. And 95% of the hands go up again. <laughs> so here's what I want you to know. We, I, I don't care what's going on in your life. How do you get past the fear? By realizing, wait a minute, wait a minute. Everything I feared was back there over my shoulder. And guess what? Guess what? I'm still here. So it turns out that fear is an acronym, F-E-A-R. Feeling excited and ready. <laughs> Feeling excited and ready. 
Ah, I love it. So I'm not afraid of anything because I don't need anything. See, I've gotten to the point, and not just recently, but 25 years ago, it occurred to me, you know what? I really don't need anything in particular to happen in order for me to be as happy as I know how to be. I don't have to get the guy, get the girl, get the car, get the job. I don't have to have a certain particular outcome. I know there are things I desire, and there's nothing wrong with desire. But do I really, truly, absolutely, positively need that to happen in order for me to be a happy and joyful person? And the answer is no. I made that all up. The idea that I needed to happen, I made it all up. And take it from me. I know people are going to say, well, Neil, I, I have to at least have a certain income or I can't pay my rent. Right. At, least I have to have, right. at least I have to have a certain amount of you know, food in my refrigerator or I can't survive the week. Excuse me. You're talking to a guy who lived for a year with 35 cents in his pocket. I don't want to hear it. You can't impress me. You can't impress me with what you think you need to survive. But here's the thing, and here's what I've come to learn thanks to conversations with God. Mm. Survival is not the agenda. Survival is not the basic instinct. People try to tell us survival is the fundamental instinct. No, it's not. Excuse me. If survival was the basic instinct, you would not run into the burning building to save the baby on the second floor. You'd run away from the building. But when you're walking down the street and you notice a building's on fire and you hear a baby crying on the second floor, nine out of ten people run into the building, hello, without thinking. Mm. They, don't, they don't weigh the odds. Let's see now. If I go in there, I made it. No. Or if you're sitting on the sidewalk in New York City and you see a toddler, a three-and-a-half-year-old, venture out you know, in the way a toddler will into the street, into the, into the busy intersection, and you see a car coming along, you get to your feet, leap up, and rush out to save that child, even if you may get hit by the car yourself and die. You throw that child at least out of the way. It may get a broken bone or a bruise, but it's not going to die. Not on my watch. Not on my watch. Because that's who you really are. So if survival were the fundamental instinct, you would not act that way when the chips are down. What is the fundamental instinct? The demonstration of your divinity. Mm. That's why you came here. And that's what you do every time the chips are down. Mm. I could, of course, be wrong about all of this. Hmm. But I don't think so. I feel you. I feel you. Look, Neil, to the person who, let's say, yeah, you talked about reincarnation. So they might say, like, you know, Neil, this shit's too hard. This is just, this is really too hard for me right now. And if it's reincarnation, let me just end this, let, let me just end this incarnation, start all over again in a different incarnation because I just, I made a mess of my life. It's too difficult. Let me start afresh and anew. And maybe, look, seriously, like maybe someone is, on edge right now, wondering, wondering, wondering if it's worth it, Neil. They're wondering, is it worth it? So uh, well, it, it, it what is would you say it. to them? What would you say to that person? It, it is worth it if you know what you're doing, if you know what your agenda is, if you know what the objective is. It's not worth it if you don't know what the objective is. But as for starting over and getting a clean start, you're talking to a guy who's had multiple marriages. And oh. life is like marriages. You know, you think, oh, I'll get a clean start. Guess <laughs> what? Guess what? You encounter the same stuff in marriage number two that you did in marriage number one. You encounter the same stuff in marriage number three that you did in marriage number one. And pretty soon it dawns on you, oh, I get it. I am wherever I go. Even if I were to reincarnate, 
Mm. I'm still going to carry, you know, I'm going to carry forward to my next life. If you, you think you're going to wipe the slate clean. No, you came to physical life in order to remember who you are, given a pr- particular set of circumstances. And I promise you, you're going to want to recreate those circumstances virtually again in order that you may complete what you came here to accomplish. Wow. You're not going to step away from it and say, oh, you know what, I'll just do myself in and I'll come back in it and I'll start over in a different lifetime because your soul is going to say, I'm sorry, sweetheart. It doesn't work that way. The purpose of life was to remember who you really are. And you're going to give yourself a certain kind of environment, a certain kind of experience within which to do so. So there's there's no escaping that. The escape is to make different choices when those events and circumstances confront you. The escape is to make different choices choices for entirely different reasons so i decided you know that must be true about marriages i've now been married to my wife for 12 years it's the longest marriage i ever had never never got past the 10th year and now it's 12th year thank you it's my seventh marriage i've been married seven times because you know it's like wait a minute but at least you couldn't say that i'm an emotionally unavailable male (laughs) <laughs> see I was really willing I was really willing I'm saying you know what I'm willing I swear to God I'm willing somebody just show me how this is done and I realize there is clearly something I don't understand here about relationship the so, understanding of which would change everything what was the thing that you didn't under, I mean seven marriages I mean you know, it, it's a lot it's a lot it's okay even, you did good you kept trying you kept swinging so I give you credit you, you didn't give up and and so for those who have had three failed marriages, there's hope, right? And so what was the thing you didn't understand that was the most fundamental thing in your relationships that you didn't understand as to why they kept not working? I didn't, can work from? I didn't understand what I was doing in the relationship. I didn't understand why I was in relationship. I didn't understand the purpose of relationship. I didn't understand the purpose of life. I didn't understand what I was doing on the planet. I didn't understand the whole process that goes on that we call life itself. Mm. I, and I thought I was in relationship you know, to get what I could get. You know, I looked for the most beautiful woman. I looked for the kindest person. I looked for the most generous individual. I was looking for, and I, I got to admit it, I'm going to be, I'm going to be Please. You know, transparent here. But I, you know, I was obviously looking for the best partner I could find mm. and, and the qualities in life that I thought would enrich my life. Mm. And, I, and when I found a person that I thought would enrich my life, I married her. I mean, I asked her if she'd marry me and, and foolishly they all said yes <laughs> because they didn't realize that I was in the marriage to get something. And, and not that I wasn't willing to give that. Don't get me wrong. I wasn't such a bad person that I was willing to give nothing. Yeah. Central reason for being in the marriage for getting into the relationship was, Oh, this is going to really enhance my life. This is, this is going to make me whole. This is going to be wonderful. I can't wait. Only until I got into my seventh marriage that I realized that my relationship had nothing to do with what I get from another. Read that N-O-T-H-I-N-G, nothing. Nothing. I heard that. That the purpose of my relationship was to see what I could, what part of myself I wanted to show up. What part of myself could I give to the relationship? Because it is in giving what we wish we would receive, we become self-realized. Now, when you're in a relationship like that, guess what? No lady walks out the door. She looks at you. No partner walks out of the room. They look at you and they say, what heaven did you drop out of? (laughs) 
<laughs> I hear you. So, so how, do, how, how do you decide? How does someone, you know, how does someone decide maybe they're in a relationship right now if this is the right person for them? Because technically what you're saying doesn't really matter who you're with. You that's know, exactly right. You just nailed it. There is no right person. But, but what if the person is selfish? What if the person is an abuser? What if the person is, you know, narcissistic? You're kind of, are you saying doesn't really matter, choose them and just love them and make it work? Or isn't there some discernment in the factor here? Yeah, well, there is discernment. I'm not saying that you need to stay in the relationship if they're abusive to you or if, you, they, they, if it's not possible to love yourself. We have to include ourselves in the list of people that we love. So we have to give ourselves the freedom to say, you know what? The qualities of life that you are displaying and expressing are not enhancing uh, to our relationship, and 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 I, you know, I've done my best to accept and to move move through life with them, but I'm no longer willing to do that. So it's okay to end a relationship. You can never really end a relationship. All relationships last forever. You can simply change the the the, the character of them, the quality of them. But the relationship is is all relationships are forever. Yeah, and, and that's what's true about that. Now, I'm not suggesting that we allow ourselves to be abused or to be terribly, terribly miserable or unhappy. But I'm saying that the way to be happy, the way to be happier than you ever have been before, is to understand that if you are there to give everything you have to give, expecting, requiring, and demanding nothing in return. You know, to, in other words, to love other people the way God loves us. What does God demand of us? But see, that's hard for people to understand because people will say to you by the billions Billions of people will say to you, well, Neil, since you brought it up, God does demand things of us. And if we don't give these things to God, he'll punish us and send us to hell for everlasting damnation. But, but if you believe in a God who requires, demands, expects nothing from you, will never judge you, condemn you for anything whatsoever, then you realize that God's love for us is unconditional. God loves us needing nothing in return. Yes. When I, and, but here's what's funny. Even a person who's automatically selfish, even a person who's the kind of person thoughtless, insensitive, the kind of person you were just describing, even those people can trans, uh, can 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 become uh, transmute and transcend their fundamental characteristics when they find themselves in a relationship with somebody who is loving them, needing nothing in return. Suddenly wow. they change, and they begin to think, "Wow, do I want to lose this guy? Mm. Do I want to lose this person?" I've never, I've never, I've, you know, to put it in the vernacular, I've never had it so good, you know, and, and so they, they, they find themselves changing their own behavior. What if they don't? If, they, if their behaviors don't change, they continue to be insensitive, thoughtless and cruel and unkind. Then you get to say, you know what? I don't choose to continue this relationship in this particular form. I will always love you. I'm not going to stop loving you. But loving you doesn't mean that I have to live with you. In the same house. So, so that kind of, you could say unconditionality, that commitment to just demanding nothing, what I'm also hearing has a, can have the potential of a transformative, you know, alchemy for the other person that is in, in the experience of that loving, yes? Yes, that's the, that's the very nature of, of, of every spiritual teaching. Oh, right, right, right. Be the change you wish to see. Mm, mm. So when we move through the world in that way, not only are we capable of changing individual relationships, but whole groups of people can be changed by the way we interact with them. Mm, that's and ultimately, the world at large. Mm. You know, I, 
Neil, I'm really loving this conversation with you. I want to be respectful for your time. I have two final questions. Uh, one is a curiosity for me personally as, as a teacher myself and an author. And, um, you know, you wrote Conversations with God. You said you didn't expect it to blow up and be this thing. You just put it out there, uh, reached millions of people, 37 languages. Um, over the years, how have you, uh, and you kind of touched on it a little bit, but I'd love to hear what you have to say. How have you managed to stay humble? <laughs> right because a lot of times you know you become this big author and you know you, you corrected me about the legend part got it you know you, but but you know it could be enticing that everyone's like neil oh neil my god neil conversation with god author neil on stages on oprah on this it's like you know after 20 some years of doing that maybe uh something to prevent your ego right how do you stay humble? 25 years to be exact. This is the 25th anniversary wow. publication of Conversations with God. So we're celebrating our silver anniversary. Amazing. Amazing. The answer to your question is, how do I stay humble? By looking in the mirror. Mm. By going to bed every night and reviewing how I was during that day. The choices I made. The things that I said. The thoughts that I entertained. Mm. The way that I was being with other people. And when I review that list each night when I go to sleep, I'm aware. I've remembered a great deal. I've come to understand a great deal. And there's a great deal more for me to learn. There's a great deal more. Learn is the word I wouldn't use, really. There's a great deal more for me to remember about who I really am. And the opportunities for me to expand, to become more of a demonstration of who I really am and who I really choose to be. So I don't have a hard time being humble. All I have to do is look at myself, mm. Mm. watch my own behaviors, listen to myself. Mm. It's then that I become very clear mm. about the work that's left for me to do. Also, there's this, Kut. Uh, I don't have a, a single notion in my mind now, I don't have a single thought in my head that this material, these messages that have brought me this attention, and in some cases, yes, even adulation from certain people, uh, that have brought me all that energy. I don't even have the slight, slightest idea that that came from me. Hmm. If, if I had you know, composed a symphony and the whole world fell at its feet because the symphony is so beautiful and they showered praise and they showered honor and glory on me, I probably would accept it. But if somebody came up to me in the middle of the night with a flute and, 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 and played a song, and I happened to remember the melody, and then the next day I wrote a symphony based on that melody, I wouldn't be able to accept uh, the praise and the glory because I would say, it's not, it, it's not mine. Yeah. I simply brought it through. Mm. So I'm real, real clear that I, had, that I am not the source of the 4,000 pages of messages in the Conversations with God material, messages that have touched the lives of millions of people in a way that is profoundly life-changing. But I had nothing to do with it. You know, it, my biggest challenge in life is to walk the talk wow. as found in the books that have my name on the cover. <laughs> mm, got it. Beautiful. You know, Neil, you shared... Uh, obviously, you've written a lot, 29 books, if not more at this point. 37, uh, but who's counting? 37. <laughs> yeah. 
just a few books. I'm on my second one. I'm, ge- I'm getting through my second one and I'll send it to you as well. Uh, but wow, that's an endeavor. That's, a, that's an endeavor. Um, and you shared a lot today and I just want to really thank you for your generosity. Um, the last question I'd like to ask is if we were to distill everything you shared and maybe distill your life wisdom and you were to speak to humanity, uh, if there were three things, three three key ideas that you feel in, in this moment of your evolution that you've learned seven marriages, best-selling author, father, human being, spiritual being, what do you feel the most, the three most important wisdoms you feel you would like to share with humanity that humanity needs to hear right now at this point? Well, I don't have much wisdom to share with anyone, anyone who followed me around on a daily basis would really laugh at the question, much less the answer that I would presume to give. But I can share with you three of the most important wisdoms from conversations with God. Please, please. uh, Which have nothing to do with me at all. I don't even live these wisdoms at the level that I wish that I did. Mm. I know what the wisdoms are. And the first one I've already shared with you, I'll share it with you again. Your life has nothing to do with you. Your life is not about you. It's about everyone whose life you touch and the way in which you touch it. Mm. Wisdom number two, all things are one thing. There is only one thing in existence, and all things are part of the one thing there is. That means that you are a singularization, an individuation of that single thing. I call that single thing God. You can call it what you want. Divine energy, the source, you know, whatever you want to call it, but we are all that. And I saw the second most important thing I've learned is not to deny my true identity. Mm. And the third most important thing that I've learned is there's enough. Mm. There's enough of all I need to be totally and completely joyful and happy. And the proof of the fact that there's enough is the fact that I'm still here. Here I am. So clearly, I've always had, see, there's been enough money, enough time, enough love, enough companionship, enough awareness, enough food, enough opportunity, enough of everything I thought I needed to be happy. Clearly, I've had all I needed because I'm still here. Mm. And so what I invite people in my audiences to notice is, look, you've always had enough. Maybe it's not as much as you thought you needed, Maybe not as much as you would like to have had, but you've always had enough. And the evidence of that is the fact that you're sitting right now in the chair listening to me. Mm-hmm. So we move then into a place of gratitude. We say, thank you, God, for helping me to understand that the current problem that I'm facing has already been solved for me, mm-hmm. as have all the others. And it will, in fact, be resolved in this lifetime, unless it's not unless I die before the problem is resolved, in which case it won't matter one bit. Mm. So what am I sitting here getting upset about or worried about when I know that my life will go on forever and ever and even forevermore? And as long as I move through my life in such a way that I make sure that no one's life is not made better Mm. or my having passed through it, I will feel when I put my head in the pillow for the last time, wow, Mm. wow. I told my kids, my family, my wife, everybody around me knows exactly what I want on my tombstone. They've all agreed, they've all guaranteed me it's going to be on my tombstone. 
They've given me their word. Four words on my gravestone, etched in concrete. Now that was fun. <laughs> now that was fun. Neil, seriously, you've been, more, you've been a lot of fun today. You have, uh, you've exceeded my expectations. Just, just you being yourself, to be honest. I just want to just thank you again for showing up like... I was a kid in the, the Bodhi Tree bookstore on Melrose 20 years ago. Conversations with God kind of dropped in my lap and really had a profound impact on my life. So just know amongst the millions of folks, you've inspired one person over here. So deep gratitude. And it, for me, it's a, such a joy to look you in the eye and say thank you and bless you. And uh, I know that. Uh, may God continue to flow through you and use you, Neil, in ways that it, she, has not even used you up until now. I feel like uh, maybe just the beginning of, of your life in many ways. So seriously, thank you for coming on. Uh, folks listening in as you're listening to this conversation, hope, hope you've been also taking lots of notes. Let's let the homework today to, to, to meditate on the abundance and the enoughness that we have to acknowledge the gratitude for what we do have on many different levels and to... Speaking radi- of... Yes. Speaking of acknowledging gratitude... I want to acknowledge Heather Godfrey. Yes. Wow, Heather, thank you for being such a wonderful producer and technical director and support that makes this whole thing happen because if it weren't for the people behind the scenes, there'd be no scene to be behind. So thank you for your talent, your dedication, your ability and your willingness to be there for all of us in this way. Amen. Amen. My soul is uh, quite full, Neil, in this moment. Uh, wow. Uh, what's the best way? You know, obviously, people, I want people to find out about your work. Folks, if you haven't read Conversations with God yet, check out Conversations with God. You just said it's the 25th anniversary. I invite all of you to, to, to read the book, read all the books that Neil has, that have come through, Neil, I should say. Uh, what's the best way, Neil, people can find out about your, your events, your website? Your, your, what's, what's the best place for people to go? They can stay connected with the Conversations with God messages at CWG, which, of course, stands for Conversations with God. So the address is cwgconnect.com, cwgconnect.com. And there's a place there called Ask Neil, where you can ask me any question that occurs to you, and I'll give you my best news. CWGConnect.com, folks. We'll post the uh, the link in the show notes. Go there. Check out Neil's work. Check out the Conversations with God, 25th anniversary. Incredible. Incredible. Neil, thank you so much. Everyone, uh, I would love for you to do me a favor. I have a request, if you would please... Uh, as you digest this episode, share this episode with your friends, with your loved ones, with your family on social media. I would love as many people to just receive the blessing of this conversation and Neil's, Neil's sharing today. Uh, send me an email, coopblackson at coopblackson.com. Let me know how you enjoyed today's episode, your key takeaways. And I can't wait to connect with you in the next episode of Soul Talk. Love now, folks. Much love.
If you've enjoyed this episode of Soul Talk, please do share the podcast with all of your friends. Let everyone know and make sure you download Soul Talk today. I'm looking forward to next week where I'll get to share more inspiration with you. Meanwhile, follow me on Facebook, Instagram, or social media. You can find out more about my work at www.coopblackson.com. If you feel ready to take your life to the next level, join me at my exclusive event in Bali, www.boundlessblissbali.com, where you can find out more and apply. Also, make sure to remember to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment at coopblackson.com. Sending you all big hugs and love now.